Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for a beautiful morning um, in your creation and that we are surrounded by evidences of your goodness, your faithfulness, your kindness to us. And we have uh, even better than that revelation, the revelation of your word, uh, of the very words of Jesus to hear and consider this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear well. Holy Spirit, would you work in us that, that we would hear what Jesus has to say to us, um, that our hearts would be convinced and compelled, that we would desire to believe and follow after him. Uh, help us to do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you uh, listen to the text being read, my guess is that one of the words that jumped out at you was anxious. It was said many times, and I'm guessing that for most of us, it's not hard for you to connect emotionally with that idea, with that experience. Uh, the world that we live in, uh, so many opportunities to be anxious, to be stressed, to, to feel worry, and perhaps even debilitating worry at times. And, and think about the images that this text has in it. You have treasures that rot and rust. You have eyes that are full of darkness. You have this notion of being enslaved to this never-ending quest for just more and more stuff. These words of Jesus speak so well to us, people who live in this world, that there is just a myriad of temptations a myriad of various things that are hard, that could cause us stress and anxiety. Uh, a world that in so many ways is very easy to get lost in, to get confused in, to get disoriented in. As I was thinking about this text, uh, my mind went to a movie from my childhood, the 1991 movie City Slickers with uh, Billy Crystal. Maybe some of you have seen this. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's a pretty funny movie, actually, but it's, a, it's about a group of middle-aged guys, and they're all going through midlife crisis. Uh, this group of friends, they decide to go to a dude ranch where they're going to spend a couple of weeks, and they're, they're going to drive this herd across uh, the West, and each of them needs to get clarity and direction in their life. So one of the guys, he spent his, basically his entire adult life going from one relationship to another, never being able to commit to any relationship because of the baggage he carries from his father cheating on his mom and leaving them. One of the friends is just incredibly depressed and stuck uh, because he's in a really hard marriage and he's stuck in the family business and he can't get out. Another guy is just living with this general sense of apathy and joylessness. And they arrive at this ranch and the, this figure, this character that really grabs them is this guy named Curly who is this old cowboy and he's the one in charge of uh, taking this herd and driving it across the West. And Curly's kind of the sage figure, the wise figure in the film. And there's this very, very crucial scene where uh, Billy Crystal's character, Mitch, and Curly are riding horses together. And uh, Curly says this to him. He says, all you city folk come up here about the same time in life. You know, you're about 38, 39. Same problem and none of you get it. Do you want to know what the secret to life is? One thing. 
I've thought of this text many, or this, this movie many times as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount because numerous times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has emphasized the necessity of having a singular focus. In the beginning of the sermon, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart which is to say the flourishing life, the good life belongs to those who have a singular focus, a heart that's oriented toward God. In chapter 6, Jesus, he contrasts the way that his disciples are to pray and to fast and to give with the way other people pray, fast, and give. His disciples are to do this with a singular intent rather than the rest who kind of have this intent to please God but then also really want other people to see them doing it. And here in our passage, Jesus shows us that the way of following him is this singular focus, which could be summarized in verse 33, where he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is telling us that life is really about one thing. And he tells us exactly what that one thing is that it's about his kingdom and his righteousness. And, and those two ideas, much in the same way, if you remember in the Lord's Prayer, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, your kingdom come, and we're talking about the kingdom, right? And, we're talk- and then we pray, your will be done, which is similar to this idea of righteousness, the doing of God's will. These two are really two facets of one idea, that to seek the kingdom and to seek righteousness is to live with this orientation toward the king, and with the community of his people to pursue the cause and the mission of God in our world. To sum it up in another phrase that Jesus uses in the sermon, he says, it's a life of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So let's think about these words of Jesus this morning, and I want us to consider three things. Uh, First, what I'm going to call the inevitability of seeking after something. Second, the danger of not seeking after God, and then finally, third, the solution. So if you have the text in front of you, that'll be helpful. The first, the inevitability of seeking after something. When Jesus tells us to seek, he's not calling us to do something that we're not already doing. He's calling us to direct and orient the activity of our hearts and our lives toward him and his will. But look at what he says in verses 19 through 24. He gives three examples. There are two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. So in verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But notice, there's not an option not to lay up treasures In a sense, Jesus is saying, like, you will do this. You can't not invest your life. You are investing your life. You will invest it and give it to something. And Jesus is calling us to give it to God. In verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And he's saying, you know, basically that your eye is going to be on something, like your eye may be healthy, it may be aimed at God, or your eye may be bad, it may be, it may be uh, you know, disoriented, it may be aiming at something else, but there's not an option not to have an eye. You're going to have an eye and you're going to be headed in some direction. And verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. But the question is, who will you serve? Because there's not an option not to serve a master. You will serve somebody. 
laying up treasures, what your eyes focused on, what you serve. The point is that this is inevitable. Like you are, you and I are doing this right now. We've done it this last week. We're going to do it this upcoming week. We will do this. And this is really important because I think for all of us here this morning, wherever you are with Jesus, whether you know, you're here and you're someone that, that believes or whether you don't or whether you're just asking questions, this is a passage where Jesus pushes us to really consider where are you investing your life? Uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, a well-known writer and a professor of literature, not a Christian, uh, he said these really famous words in a commencement speech at Kenyon College. The speech is called, This is Water. Listen to these words. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Do you hear what he's saying? It's very similar to Jesus. Like everybody is seeking after something. Everyone is giving their life to something. He goes on and he says, the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. You worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. You worship money, worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. They're the kind of worship you just slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. The so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on these default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. That is really insightful. And it's very honest. He's saying, to put it again in terms of the passage and what Jesus is saying, you can't get away from seeking. You can't stop it. You're going to seek after something. You can seek the praise of others. You can seek to be liked, desired. You can seek after money and power and success and achievement. You can seek after, you know, having the perfect family and having your kids turn out just right. You can seek almost after anything. The one thing you can't do is not seek. But this leads into the second thing that Jesus shows us in this passage, which in a sense is the danger of seeking after anything else other than God. Go back to those images in the passage. So the two treasures, right? Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth, but rather in heaven. Why? Because the ones on earth are eaten up and they rust and they can be taken. Unlike the treasure in heaven. In verse 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the heart in the Bible is the control center of your life. So 
if your ambition and your goals are about laying up treasure here, then in a sense, your whole heart, your life will be wrapped up in this world. And Jesus urges you to see that doing this, laying up treasure here for yourself, is a bad investment. That it's not safe. It won't last. Remember the words of David Foster Foster Wallace, there will never be enough, and even if you had it all, it will be susceptible to nature's moth, to time's rust, and to others' thievery. Jesus says to lay up treasure for yourself here is to guarantee deep loss, frustration, and dissatisfaction. But that's not all. The two eyes. If your eye is on God and you have that singular focus, then it's going to inform all parts of your life. And it's going to grant you great wisdom and insight, especially in times of difficulty. Like the heart from the previous example, your eye is going to direct you and orient you and help you to see where you're going. But Jesus says, if your eye is bad, if your eye is is greedy, if it's seeking after other things than Jesus' kingdom, then your whole life is full of darkness. Which that is, of course, an image of confusion, and disorientation and this sense of lacking any real perspective of knowing what to do and where to go. Jesus says to not have this singular focus, this eye toward me and my kingdom and doing my will is to guarantee confusion and disorientation in life. But there's more than that. The two masters, Jesus says you can't serve two masters because you'll love one and you'll hate and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Or that last word in the passage, you can translate it possessions. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and things. Which means that if we're going down that path of giving our life to amassing clothes and houses and cars and vacations and all that, and and that's what we're seeking after and that's where we're going and what we're serving, Jesus is saying it's going to lead you to despise God. Jesus says, if you do this, you can't serve God. Twice in the passage, he says, it's not possible to serve two masters. This is the danger of seeking anything else because it controls our lives and it darkens our perspectives and it keeps us from the joy of knowing and following God. And it should be really not that surprising that if you look at verse 25 and following, why what goes on after this, Jesus speaks so much about anxiety and worry, all the concerns that we have about life. Because if our hearts are divided, if we don't have this singular focus, of course we're going to feel anxious and stressed and worried. And as we turn to this last section, really, Jesus tells us the solution. The solution to our anxiety and our fear, our divided hearts. And and I think you can boil it down to two things. Two things that Jesus would have us do. We need to recognize the Father's care and seek his kingdom. We have to recognize and seek. Look at the argument he makes in verses 25 through 32. You have to recognize the Father's care. You have to take note of the goodness of God and his generosity. 
6.25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Why do we get anxious? Why are our hearts divided? To some extent, I think Jesus is saying it's because we don't really trust God's goodness and his faithfulness. And Jesus says, like, look around. Look at the, look at the birds. They're not storing up and God is caring for them. Do you not think that you're more valuable to God than they? Look at verse 28 where he says, and why are you anxious about clothing? He says, consider, which, which is a word that means observe well the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And listen again to the argument. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear for the Gentiles? That is, those who don't know God, they seek after these things, but your heavenly Father knows you need them. He's saying, think, look, recognize, look around at creation, the birds, the lilies, the fields, look at how they're cared for, even consider their beauty. The living God, the sovereign of the universe, cares for them are you not more valuable to him if you will receive it jesus is saying you are surrounded by evidence of god's care there are illustrations all around us right now and as we go about our days as we drive as we walk around illustrations that if we would see them are pointing us to the reality that we can trust god that our God is good, that, the God, that this is the God who sent Jesus to save us from our sins and from our sorrows and to restore the world and bring his kingdom. And he has your life and he knows your needs and he is not going to let you down with what you need. We have to recognize. The other thing Jesus says, we have to seek. This is verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We have to seek, and what I mean by that is we have to act. Think about the action verbs in this passage. Lay up treasures, serve God, seek the kingdom. It's this reality that Jesus is pointing us to that our hearts, in a sense, are reoriented as we do these things by faith, as we act and we step out as we seek God in his word, as we seek God in the community of his people, as we seek the kingdom and we pursue others with the good news of Jesus, as we do things like, for example, the, the Downers Grove uh, homeless ministry and, and we participate in kingdom acts of mercy, as we seek the Lord in prayer. Here's an example of, uh, from my life in this, la- in this last week. Um, 
So we started this process of trying to buy a home. Um, and we weren't really serious about it, especially me. It was kind of like, let's go look at a bunch of stuff. Let's see neighborhoods. Let's get a feel for things. So we kind of know where we're at. Until last Sunday. Because last Sunday, we saw what, in my estimation, is the most beautiful house I've ever seen. Um, we got to this open house. We see it, and Aaron and I are just totally blown away. And I went from zero to 100 miles an hour. In five or six hours, we had pulled together financing. We had our approval letter. I spent about two hours researching how to write a letter to a seller, got a picture of our family, and wrote this beautiful, beautiful letter. Believe me, it was wonderful. And I sent it off, and everything, we, you know, we offered full price. Like, we were ready to go, and I'm thinking, I'm already like, oh, what's it going to be like to live here? I could see the kids doing this. I think I might put a fence in. That'd be really nice. You know, that outdoor room is perfect. And then we get a text on Monday that the sellers went with a different buyer. And my heart just sank and I was emotionally sad, um, but it wasn't just I was sad. If I was honest with you, I was angry. And up underneath that anger was a fear that there is no other house like this, and there is no other neighborhood that was just the right price point and all the things that were important to us that we could get in. It was a sense of this isn't fair. I really wanted that. And then I knew I was preaching this text, which didn't help. And I'm thinking about, what does this say about my heart? That that's where my heart went. Well, this is how God started to reorient my heart. Later that day, uh, we're out and uh, the kids are sleeping in the car. And I'm waiting. Aaron's at a doctor appointment. And I'm, you know, flipping through my email, and I get to an email from RUF at the University of Delaware, where I used to be a campus minister just until uh, this last year. And I see pictures of all of our students, and I see a picture of this one particular girl that had just dipped her toe in the ministry last year and was really starting to ask questions about Jesus and Christianity, and then pretty quickly started to pull back and just disconnect in a lot of ways. And I see this picture of her screenshotted with a bunch of other students at a virtual RUF large group. And I text the campus minister and I say, has she been coming out? And he says, yeah. And I met up with her and she's plugging into the group. And God just starts to work in my heart and I just begin to pray for her and to pray for these other students and to pray for the work of the kingdom there. And slowly, it's like the notches in my heart start getting reoriented. And then uh, the next day, so this is part two. There, there's a group of us at Trinity right now that uh, we're seeking to be intentionally focused on reaching out to friends and neighbors uh, because we want to get to know them and we want to get to know their stories and what they believe and, and, and we long for them to know the joy of knowing Jesus. And so each week in this group, one of our assignments is to do a survey with a new person. And so I'm driving on Tuesday to do my survey and I'm a little nervous about it, but I'm praying about that. And then I'm thinking about all these other people, these friends at Trinity who are doing this along with me. And I'm praying for them. And I'm thinking of the conversations they're having. And it's like by the end of the day, the house is gone. But God's doing the work of his kingdom. And this isn't a story about like how great I am. It's a story about how messed up I am. But that there are these very concrete ways in which these small acts of 
of stepping out or of pursuing someone in love or of prayer that the Lord begins to reorient our hearts away from all the treasures here that would distract us and disorient us and moves us to serve and love him. And it's really important, you know, just to wrap up here, it's really important as we hear this that in no way are we hearing Jesus in a sense say, God has left it up to you and so you need to get to work to, you know, fix your heart and, you know, just start working out, doing your heart work and, and make it happen. Because what we really have to see is that Jesus who is speaking to his disciples, who is speaking to us, this is the Jesus who does not speak words from heaven through a megaphone, but this is the God-man who came, who lived among us. He is the one who took on flesh and lived in our world that he might seek and save that which is lost. The God who calls you to seek him in his kingdom is the God who has first sought you in Jesus Christ. And the only way that we could seek his kingdom and his righteousness is because of Jesus who has gone before us, who has the pure heart, who has the eye of doing God's will and serving God, who sought after the kingdom and the righteousness of God and had that singular focus even when it meant that it was going to take him to his death for us and to bring this kingdom to our world. Jesus is the only master who serves you more than you will ever serve him, who died that you might be his treasured possession, that you might belong to him. And this is the Jesus who calls us very soberly in this text, each of us today, to turn from all the things that would, from every other object and every other pursuit, and rather seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's take a moment, uh, as is appropriate and as we always do, to uh, pause and pray, to perhaps confess our sins to God, to ask for his help. Uh, we'll take a few moments of silence and then uh, Jeff will come up and close us in prayer.